Hello and welcome to Making UX Work. I am Joe Natoli. Our focus here is on folks like you doing the tough, often unglamorous work of UX in the real world. My guests share their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Stash Studio, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message, inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome, something obviously very close to my heart for those of you that know me. The Stash mantra is that even in the darkest times, there is a light revealing prosperity. Find your light, let it guide you through the darkness. Visit stash.studio to check out their incredibly well-designed products and learn more. Somewhere around 2006, after selling my design firm, I was feeling the itch to go back to independent UX consulting. So I started looking around to see what and how other people were doing that, which is where I became aware of Mr. Nick Fink. Within three minutes of perusing his website, I thought to myself, I want to be like this guy. Seriously. And not just because he was obviously as sharp as they come, but because his heart and his humanity and his compassion came screaming through every aspect of what I saw. So imagine my good fortune to not only have had Nick to look up to as a role model, but to also have him as a good friend. And although he's likely going to hate what I have to say next, uh, I'm going to say it anyway as I think will be painfully obvious during this nearly one and a half hour conversation, which was really tough to edit because there was more and it was all really good. Nick Fink is a truly rare breed. He's a consummate professional with deep experience in every area of UX design and product development. He's a mentor in the true sense of the word, a person whose tireless commitment and seemingly endless generosity in helping other people find their feet and grow in this industry knows no equal. To me, a leader is someone who inspires trust, inspires confidence, someone who provides the necessary safety for his team members, for people around him to take risks, to challenge things, and to grow into the very best versions of themselves. Someone who sets an example by actions, not just words. Someone who unquestionably, unflinchingly has your back in every possible way. That's my friend, Nick Fink, and I am truly honored to have him here on the Making UX Work podcast. Let's get to it. Nick Fink, how are you? Pretty good. How's it going, Joe? <laughs> it's going, man. It's going. I, I, I kind of don't know what day of the week it is, but um, other, other than that, <laughs> it's Thursday. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what month it is, man. <laughs> It's, 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 I think it's still March. Yeah, right, right. It feels like it should still be March, you know, like you're just like taking a week off of vacation, you get a roll back into yeah. the office the next week, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just been like one long, one long week. <laughs> For, that's, that spanned several months, you know, and it just sort of keeps going. Yeah. It's, it's good to hear somebody else sort of agree with that, right? Because I, you start to feel like you're crazy after a while. <laughs> right. 
Well, you know, they have this thing called cabin fever, right? You get cooped up in a house and, you know, where I'm at here in Seattle, we've got a lot of forest fires going on. So everybody's inside. Like you don't even, it's, it's like, it looks like Tatooine outside, you know, or as my wife happily put it, uh, it looks like a a post-apocalyptic Holocaust kind of crazy, like massive explosion of something and everything's just covered with like a dust, right? You know, Um, so we're all inside and, you know, that could kind of play with you a bit. You know, I see it with my toddler even and he's just like i want to go outside i want to go outside it's like not right now yeah what's it so what's it like i mean what's the air and the and the and everything like now has it gotten any better at all oh no it was really bad just the other day um there's hope that it's going to clear up um because one of the things we do get in seattle is a lot of days of uh rain um but you know it's not like that like heavy rain that you're probably seeing like in like austin or someplace where it's like a flash flood it's this is like a Oh, you go outside, you might have a couple of specks of rain on your uh, glasses or something. Um, but that actually helps clear out the systems. Um, so the weather systems kind of come through and stuff. But uh, right now it's kind of just hanging out in the valleys and uh, and kind of causing havoc. Um, mm. You know, when it gets really bad, you can't even see a city block down the road. Um, the entire like as you're coming into Seattle and you normally see like the skyline as you're going, you know, uh, I-5 North and you see like nothing but fog. Right. You know, and it's not fog. It's just the the smoke. I mean, this is this is kind of. I mean, I don't know that it's relevant to to our conversation, but it, it always makes me curious. You're seeing all this noise right now, right? With even you know, with what's happening on the West Coast, yeah, and everything else about how there there are preventative methods that could have been taken or should have been taken. Um, is it to your I don't know knowledge or experience? Is there any truth to any of that? I mean, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think there's definitely some aspects of it, not like as literal as I think a lot of people like to believe that like somehow somebody had a button, they could just push it. And then all of a sudden, all these tests would be like created and like whatever and a vaccine just rolling out uh, like a factory. Right. Um, But um, I think there's kind of a deeper kind of more kind of connected to the soul of it, which is. A lot of people look at leaders, whether they agree with them or not, as somebody who's going to guide you through something, right? And they have to lead by example. And if they don't feel like, if they don't press the importance of something, then it's not going to feel important to everybody they're talking to, right? Mm -hmm. So in our case, we have a president and we have all their uh, constituents and and, uh, the citizens of the U.S. And... Uh, you know, if, if, if this guy is not taking something seriously, it rolls out and not necessarily everybody, you know, there's obviously a lot of science to this of like, Hey, this is bad. This is what we need to be doing, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, but whether he heeds that advice and how he communicates it, how, how he shows up is going to matter a lot. Right. Um, and I think, you know, as we move into kind of the presidential, uh, uh, debates and whatever is going to be happening in the next couple of months, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to kind of see like, you know, what leadership looks like and what we value in leadership, you know, forget the, the, the specific situation, but like the individual, right? Yeah, Yeah, certainly. Certainly. And I think that that sort of trickles down into, I mean, you can take I mean, politics, obviously, right, with everything that's happening um, in this country right now. But I think what you just said really applies to just about everything. I mean, there's a big difference between leading and just sort of being in a position where one way or another, you're grandstanding in some way to just kind of cover your own ass. And I see that (laughs) not only, I mean, you know, not only do I see that in the news and on even local government levels, I see it a lot inside of organizations as well. You know what I mean? There's, yep. a, there's a massive difference between being a leader and being a boss. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, um, a lot of 
people I know have like moved into like people management. Um, so they were a designer, they were a researcher, and now they're going to be managing a team of researchers or designers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily a vertical career move. It's I tell everybody it's a lateral career move. You're moving into a very different set of skills, you know, that, uh, you know, that you need to like develop and have in order to be a, a manager. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things you learn as a manager is, you know, first off, everybody's different. Um, so your, your directs are not all just like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not like they're all exactly clones of each other. This right. isn't, you know, uh, you can't just treat one person this way and then expect the other person to behave exactly the same way. Um, you know, everybody's got their own personality, their own way of working, their own way of like interacting and communicating. And so you have these kind of, uh, ways to operate with different individuals depending on what their needs are. Um, but then on, on top of that, there's the, this sort of notion of, um, being a leader. Sometimes you're sort of guiding, aiding, giving a lot of heavy direction. Usually that's when somebody's kind of new to the field or doing something they haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I could take my, my own self as an example is like if I had a boss when I first became a manager, their job would be to, give me a lot of direction of how to do things and what to do. Right. Like it's, it's that direction, right. Cause I'm new at management. If that, you know, when, when that was the case, mm-hmm. probably 14 years ago, but uh, uh, you know, and then when you get somebody like that is not necessarily new to something, but isn't a hundred percent sure. Like they don't completely trust their own instincts yet. They haven't been doing it quite long enough. Um, there's this notion of, um, you know, giving them uh, a little bit of guidance Uh, But mostly like also just kind of reassuring them, you know, like that they're on the right track. Like when they do something and they're like, hey, is this the right way? You kind of like have to have that like spidey sense saying they're asking me not just because like they want to know if there's a typo or if there's some sort of like technical aspect of it that's that's not correct or something. They want to know, like, is this even what this is supposed to look like? Right. In some cases. Yeah, there's a bigger question there. Yeah. And so, you know, it gets into the stuff. um, uh that can happen on a situation by situation level, because again, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing like me, myself, if I'm doing information architecture, I kind of know it. I'm in a certain situation there because I've done it for many years. Right. Um, if somebody asks me to rebuild a, a engine in a car, I have not done that. So, you know, <laughs> I'm going to need a lot of guidance. So it's per situation. And so there's this whole set of, uh, uh, uh sort of guidelines around this that has sort of these four areas of, of leadership, uh, and it's called situational leadership. And there's a tome of a book that goes with it. I'm not here to push the book or anything. Um, you could get the cliff notes off online and get pretty much the gist of it. But, um, um, that said, like it's it's something about like thinking about like how do you manage people? What are their situations for what you're asking them to do? And then what are the kind of tools and how heavy do you sort of wave your hand, so to speak? Like, do you do you help them do a lot of it, or do you just kind of sit back and watch them do it? You know, and then there's like even levels of people that have been doing it for so long that they don't need guidance, they don't even need reassurance, they just need interesting stuff to work on, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like encouragement and delegation, right? High directive versus low directive this the situational leadership kind of covers all that sort of stuff and i've used it as a tool um you know and just kind of the cliff notes version of it um and i've had workshops on it too but um you know it's really helped uh kind of me think about how i'm interacting with an individual at a given moment in time based on the task i'm asking them i think a lot of managers tend to fail when they think they they sort of make assumptions. They they make assumptions that um, you know this person already knows all this stuff, so I don't need to give them any guidance. Yeah. Or 
Um, this person wants to kind of move up the, the, the sort of ladder at work in, in, in IC work. And so I'm just going to delegate to them and just kind of step away. You know, it's like, that could be disastrous, you know, and, and, and it, it's all, obviously people are very complicated organisms, right? And so there's a lot of dynamics to it, not just this kind of one of like how much direction to give, how much guidance, how much encouragement and mentoring. Um, but, um, there's other things like, you know, well, what's the, the, the sort of ethos of the person? Um, uh, I think Aaron Walter actually talked about this once, which is kind of this notion of farmers and hunters, you know, give somebody uh, a project, uh, that's a hunter that is the flagship project, you know, in a company sounds like a great idea because, oh, they're like really just pushing ahead, just kind of leaning into new territory for the company. We're going to move them to the big flagship project uh, because that's our money maker and we want the best on the best, you know, on the best stuff. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and then they mm-hmm. do d- a disaster of a job because it's, it's something that's already defined and what it needs is a farmer, somebody to kind of tend to it and maintain it and update and improve it. Where a hunter is somebody who's like, you know, there's this vague problem, go and figure out how to build a product in that space. You know, that's a hunter, right? Yeah. So yeah. figuring out like where people fall in that and then also figuring out the whole, are they individual contributor or manager? I think that we tend to um, have this legacy system of promoting people in design through these levels of like, you know, junior, mid, senior, whatever, and then saying the next level is manager. It's like, no, the next level is not manager. Yeah. The next yeah. level is principal. Yeah. That path doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. It, I mean, it can make sense for somebody if they demonstrate those, those sort of people, uh, leadership sort of skills. And there's also a difference between leading, you know, being a leader or leadership and managing or being a manager. Right. Right. Um, right. So you could be a leader and not be a manager. Right. Right. It's, it's a little difficult to be a manager and not a leader though, because then you're just kind of like, dictating things to people at that point. And, and to, to loop this back full circle, it might be, that might be the situation we are in with all of our collective leadership here is that they're trying to dictate because they don't actually have leadership, but they're in this position where they're a manager. Right. And I think that's right. I think that's totally right. It's just like you said about, you know, how people move through organizations. There's the, I'm, the whole time you're talking, right. I'm thinking to myself, there really is no explicit way that people learn how to lead, not to manage, not, not, to, not to oversee, right? Not, not to direct, to lead. Yep. Yeah. There's no, I mean, there's, there's literally, if you think about it, even inside organizations, outside organizations, formal education, whatever, there's nothing there. I mean, there's books, right? And there's experience. There's, there's the school of hard knocks, of course, broken noses. <laughs> um, but yeah, people get thrust into these positions through this linear path that, that doesn't in any way prepare them for the context that you're talking about here, right? And the, and the differences in human beings that we're talking about here. So what you wind up with is, is this total mismatch of people who are in positions where they need to be doing one thing, but they're just not equipped to do it. Yep. Setting them up for failure. Right. Yep. Right. And you sort of see that everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, and I've seen this, in, again, inside organizations as well, but for instance, what you see between you know the, the two political parties in this country right now are, it's just a lot of whining and complaining in both directions. Like, <laughs> yep. And nobody's doing anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, well, like you didn't do this. Well, you didn't do this. And they don't, they don't care about this. And they, well, okay, great. We know that. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've had conversations with managers, um, you know, on gigs yeah, where the same thing is happening. And I eventually have to sit these two people down away from everybody else and say, look, 
this turf war you guys are having isn't solving anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> let's let's figure out what needs to happen here and, and, and what's what's lacking. Forget about all that. And I think it speaks to exactly what you're saying is that the, I don't know, the inherent ability to flex and adapt and take stock of the situation, take stock of human beings involved in the situation, right? And what's actually happening deeper than the tasks that are taking place. Yeah. I don't think that that happens. And I, and I I'm increasingly believe that the reason it doesn't happen is because we're just not equipped to do it unless you're gifted, okay? And, and you take to that really easily. Now, you've been in, in leadership positions, right, throughout your entire career. How much of that came naturally to you and how much of it came from what you learned along the way or from outside resources, uh, mentors, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it came from just kind of trial and error, unfortunately. And, you know, much to, to, to my chagrin, I would love to believe I can move into a leadership role and just kind of know what I'm doing. Right. Sure. But like a lot of it was just making really bad mistakes at times, you know, um, and, and learning from that. And if I was lucky, I had somebody that would, you know, call me out on it and say, Hey, you know, you just made this mistake or whatever, you know, um, I, I, I could definitely think of times where it's just like, you know, like, let's just say it's just a real, it seems like a relatively minor decision that needs to be made. I'm talking to somebody on my team about it. And I just kind of unilaterally go, okay, we're going to make that decision. Cause you know, I love to remove roadblocks and I just want to make this thing happen. And I didn't have the right people in the room. I didn't have the conversation with the person that was going to impact the most. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is a, a buddy of mine, Jesse. I'm, we're still buddies, thankfully. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I made a decision and, you know, he basically was told this is the decision rather than a conversation with me yeah. to talk about like, here's the problems we're running into. Here's why we feel like we need to make some sort of a decision here. Here's an idea of a decision. Do you have an idea that might be better? You know? And having that like mutual kind of respect and have that conversation and get to sort of like level ground between the two of us rather than just kind of springing on them saying, Hey, guess what? This is all changing. Um, and you know, he didn't take it well. And you know, of course he was, he's really young at the time too. And you know, there is door slamming and whatnot, but, uh, sure, um, sure. you know, and, and I think, you know, both of us looking back, cause we still talk to this day, you know, it's like, we're just like, yeah, that was silly, you know, and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I mean, I had inherited, uh, uh, organization of 24 practically overnight you know um so i was just kind of thrusted into this role and i'm just like i'm just trying things out um one of the things that i i was thankful for is people like jesse and steven and all these other guys that i kind of like i'll call them like for lack of a better explanation is like my lieutenants these people that exhibit that um uh, ability to possibly manage people and have soft skills um, and also great communicators um, and possibly also great executors, although I feel like that was like less important in that particular um, realm of things. But um, I had those folks to kind of rely on. And, you know, me as a new manager inheriting this team, and I think at the time I inherited, it was only like six people and we grew it to 24. But um, uh, the first thing I think I said is like, look, you guys know this business. You guys know these clients. You guys know these projects better than I do. And you know your process better than I do. So I'm going to lean on you guys to give me advice and help me along the way. Cause I don't have mm-hmm. that knowledge going into this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that I think helped the team, you know, coming in on like day one and saying that, look, 
I'm your manager. I don't know everything. You probably know more than I do. You're probably better at this than I am in terms of execution and what needs to happen. So I'm going to look to you to give me guidance on that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the people that kind of rise to kind of the leadership thing, not necessarily management, but the leadership aspect, pull that in and lean into that. Right. Um, not to, to use a catchphrase, but they, they embrace that and, and, and drive it. Right. That's, that's where you see people shine in leadership roles. Um, and I had great people to work with there, a whole team of great people, um, all the way down to like just the, the first, you know, the most junior person on the team. In fact, my most junior person ended up outperforming all my senior people, which is kind of amazing, right? I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder if, is it, <laughs> I, I, I can't think of a better way to say this, right? So I'm just going to throw it out there. But, but again, what's going through my head as I'm thinking through what you're saying is, you know, is it somewhat on team members, you know, or employees to speak up and challenge in order to help that leader be better? Because here's what I'm wondering. A lot of what you're saying, right? The things that you said out loud to your team, right? I don't know everything there is to know here. I need you guys to help me be better, right? I need to lean on you to guide me through this. I feel like in a lot of cases, I've seen situations where leaders are feeling that, but it's never voiced. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird gap where employees feel like, well, they have to take whatever direction they're given and they can't challenge it and they can't say anything. It's this unspoken thing, right? Neither side has said, don't challenge me. And the other side has never voiced their opinion and gotten shot down. But there's this unspoken thing where it's like, I'm not going to sort of show my my need for your help. And then the other side is going, I'm not going to speak up because you're the boss. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's a cultural thing. It's, it's, it's cultural and just kind of, you know, everybody brings the baggage, you know, in the door when they start the new job, right? So yeah. all those employees that you have that are reporting up to you come from different companies and there's different cultures at those companies, right? And so they kind of just, you know, oh yeah, my previous company worked this way. So I assume it kind of works that way here, you know, and and it might not, right? Yeah. Assumption. Yeah. There's a lot of like, I mean, in Western culture, we, you know, have these kind of things of like, um, yeah, don't challenge your boss and all this kind of stuff. But we also have all this complication of, you know, the design field constantly getting pushback about being kind of a roadblock for a lot of things, you know? Yeah. Because right now, a lot of our, like, for example, in big tech, a lot of it is just about shipping, delivering things, executing, right? Getting things out the door, seeing if it fails, if it fails, you know, spectacularly, (laughs) cool, we learn something, whatever, you know. Always be shipping. Yeah, always be shipping, right? (laughs) Um, and, and, And I think the problem is, is teams are even gold on that. Like engineers are gold on, like there was a point in time where engineers were gold on lines of code, which is like, wow, okay, that's how you make bloat software, right? You know, but, uh, (laughs) um, you know, but like, you know, now they're gold on like releasing things and what major accomplishments have they had this last quarter or this last half. And, and, you know, here we are as designers looking at things and going, wait a second, you know, but have we talked to users? Have we, do we understand what the problem is? Have we tested this? You know, we're about to launch this thing. Have we checked for some basic things like accessibility? Uh, does it support proper diversity or is there some kind of inherent code that's causing a problem with that? You know, like right, all right. kinds of stuff that we are the people who kind of like us and the researchers and the researchers are always reporting findings and nobody's really listening to them. The designers are kind of like, raising her hand going, wait, 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 this seems wrong. Or, you know, Hey, I have a concern with this, you know? Yeah. And they're looked at as a roadblock rather than something to improve the bottom line of the quality. Right. You know, and the, the exaggerated version you hear about this is, well, designers want everything perfect before it ships. 
And that's not really true. That's a big myth. No, right? it's an overgeneralization. It's it's a yeah. gross generalization. Yeah. So, you know, if we're not the people to say, hey, if you release this into a wild, what's the worst that could happen is this. And you describe some very horribly wrong, very unethical situation, you know, all the way, you know, and we get tied this back to politics or whatever. But like, if we're not the people to kind of raise that red flag, who is? Right. Who's going to do it? Yeah. Because the product owners own the product and they're trying to fill a market, you know, uh, 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 a gap there. Right. And, you know, the developers are trying to release and push out something interesting. The business is trying to be more profitable. You know, everybody kind of has their little territory. And we as designers and researchers in the field of UX represent the voice of the user. Right. And if we're not bringing that voice to the table, the user isn't walking up in that room. It's us at those tables, right? You know, and everybody says, well, we don't have a seat at the table. It's like, well, we do. We just need to make sure we're doing a lot of work to build those ramps into that, uh, maybe ramps and maybe hallways, doorways into that conference room, right? Right, right. And the stakeholders can't get out of their own way either. Yeah, yeah. And you get, I mean, some cultures are built in that multiple teams will be working on the same thing in different divisions of the company. And it's sort of like a derby. They're basically, well, the better one is going to win, you know? And so you now have culture inside of a company where everybody, you know, and I think you know who I'm talking about here local to me, but yeah, I do. um, And and there's sort of like the the org chart diagram of this is like uh, a org chart with like hands and guns pointing at each other, which is a horrible analogy. But like that said, you know, that's kind of what it is in some cultures is it's like who, you know, the strong, survive this is thunderdome you know um right, you, you right. could spend six months on a project and if it's not better than the other one going on in the other division it's not going to get out and you're not going to have all that credit and you're not going to get that raise or promotion or whatever the heck you're trying to do um and that you know that that company has built that culture that way right and so you know that's that's why like when when we as designers interview you know the questions are about us are always well can you do this what software do you use you know like all these basic like execution things and and what yeah. we need to be asking in the Who um, fucking cares right like it, it doesn't matter right and and what we need to be doing on our side of the table is saying What's the company culture like? What do you value here? How do you position, you know, design within an organization? Yeah. How does that play in your process today? Are you guys open to, you know, do, do you like in that interview, do you get a sense from the, the people you're talking to? Does it seem like they're open to change? And if they're not open to change, you're not going to be able to change that no matter how great of a designer or manager or leader or whatever you are. Agreed. Right? Agreed. It's going to, because change like that level, cultural change is a very slow moving ship. You have to be at a company for a while. And what's the life expectancy of a designer at a company? A few years. Yeah, a couple of right? years. Say, a couple of years at best. Yeah. Um, I mean, I worked at an organization uh, where I, I had access to, to data on other divisions and teams across the organization. And one team, I remember very distinctively, the life expectancy of a designer was uh, short of six months. Wow. Wow. Like they basically came in, they got the job, they came in and they left before even their first review. Right. Because, you know, and depending on when they come in, like if, if it's within three months, their first review is kind of nullified. They don't actually have one. Um, but um, that said, like, you know, for those coming in kind of at the tail, the, oh, you just came in right after the previous reviews. So yeah, you're going to have like a quarter or a half or whatever, and then you're going to get reviewed and they don't even stick around for that. Right. That says something about organization 
situation. Yeah. What is it? Why are people leaving? Is it we're not paying them enough and they're getting jobs somewhere else? Is it they now have our name on their resume and that opens them up to a whole nother realm of other opportunity? Possibly, but it could also be something internal. Is it command and control? Yeah. Is it is it one designer for 75 engineers that are doing front end? Yeah. That's a problem, you know, right? And And these organizations are just like, well, we're focused on shipping and design is kind of ancillary to that. So we're only allocating a headcount this way. I mean, I've been in organizations where the, the growth is so exponential that I remember asking for a certain headcount that was like my managers believed it was like astronomical. That's ridiculous. You're not even going to be able to hire that many people in a year. So we're not going to give you that. We're going to give you like, a, it was like less than half of that. <laughs> um, and when I got that less than half, I hired all those people in the first three months. Yeah. You know, like, like, because I knew that it, it's going to take a long time for these people to ramp up. You know, the whole hit the ground running is a, is a myth, even at the senior level. Total myth. Especially in a highly technical, complicated space that that particular company was in. Um, and so, you know, there's sort of this notion of, um, you know, ramp up and ramp up takes time. So when you hire your new employee, you get, you know, in that particular company, it was a year, even, I mean, there was some people that kind of accelerated beyond this where they, they could ramp up in probably six months. Yeah. But that's rare. Yeah. But most designers that we brought in at the senior level in a highly technical space with multiple products that they're, they're dealing with one designer on like eight products. Yeah. Um, you know, that's ridiculous. Right. And so their ramp up is huge, right? It takes a year for them to ramp up. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by ramp up is how comfortable are they? Going into a room with their team, their product manager, their engineers, and knowing so much about the product that they can raise their hand and say, I don't think this is a good idea. And here's why. Exactly. Um, or I have a better solution for this, or I'm concerned about this, you know, raising their hand and saying, I'm going to give some input here and I better be right about it. Right. That takes a long time. That doesn't happen when you have a new designer in the early stages. They're just kind of like, yep, you're telling me to do this. I'm going to do this because you're saying to do this. And then in hindsight, they look back and go, why did I do that? Why didn't I push back? Why didn't I say this product thing that they're suggesting needs to be a part of another product, you know, or something like that. Right. So well, safety is a big part of that, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like you just said. I mean, you're walking into an unfamiliar situation. You're the new kid on the block. <laughs> You're overwhelmed, yep. and 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 you know you know that if you're going to raise your hand and be that guy or that gal in the room, that all eyes are on you the minute you open your mouth. Like like, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So I, I I totally get that. I think it's I think there's tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure. And the crazy part about that is that organization hired that person to do the job. Right. Exactly. And and what I mean by that is they are questioning them. They are raising an eyebrow like, can this person do this job? I know we just hired you to do the job, but can you actually do the job? Yeah, you're not going to know until you let them. Yeah, you're not going to know until you let them. But also, like, I get that there's, like, not a whole ton of signal going in in the interview process. You know, portfolios can be one thing. You know, sure. uh, projects can be, you know, done over the course of multiple years and look really hot, you know? like, um, yeah, But it doesn't yeah, mean yeah, they yeah. can actually execute. So there is, yeah, I get it. But at some point, you have to kind of set that aside and go, you know what? We hired this person. I trust they're good enough for our company. And we hired them not only to the company, but onto this team. So I have to believe they are good enough for this team. Right. And let's let them do their job and see what happens. Right. And and that last part, exactly. Okay. Don't you have to wait long enough to see how it plays out? I mean, you're not going to know even inside six months to 12 months. I think in some cases, you're not going to know 
that person's full ability or their capability or their or their range or their uh, their acumen, whatever whatever adjectives or, or nouns you want to attach to that. Yeah, yeah. I think it takes time for all that to be apparent, and it's like nobody wants to wait to find out. There's all this emphasis on because you and I have talked about interviewing before many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's all this emphasis on mitigating risk, all right, where you're going to find the perfect candidate who's going to come in and just nail it from day one. And it is such a fallacy right? in every single case I can imagine. And, you know, don't you think it takes time? You, you have to be willing to wait that out if you're that organization, if you're making an investment in people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, and not only that, but I'll add kind of a, another interesting dynamic to it is there has to be opportunity. Yes. So like if you have somebody who's, uh, if, if we could jump into their mind and see what they're all capable of somehow just by osmosis or whatever, um, you know, somebody insanely capable and is like one of those hunters that can just like give a, be given a vague thing and make a product just like that is outstanding, right? Yeah. Um, in that space with complete ambiguity around like what that should look like and all this kind of stuff. But if we're like giving them like, okay, here's this little piece of nugget of a project or here's this other project and it's like, they're not very passionate about it or whatever. Yeah. You're not going to see their capability. No way. Yeah. You have to give them that opportunity. You have to, you have to not only give them the opportunity, but you have to recognize like, I mean, yes, every designer is going to say, I want the cool, I want to work on the coolest projects and the biggest projects, whatever, you know, I mean, well, a lot of designers tend to say that for whatever reason, but like, you know, there's, you have to get to know the person, you have to get to kind of understand where they're coming from, but you, yeah, you have to see evidence of skill in some way, but that doesn't mean like, uh, delay things. Um, like, uh, I just had a, a chat the other day about this whole notion. Uh, and I think it was, with, uh, uh, Natalie Ar- Ar- Mendez, uh, but, uh, around this notion of, um, uh, sort of lagging promotions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's like, you know, we're not going to give somebody this scope until they get already show me they get operated this scope, you know, and that level. Right. Um, so, you know, cause levels should be generally tied with scope and, and, and sort of, you know, impact and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's this notion of like, you already have to be doing it before you, you can get into that role. <laughs> um, and you know, with a, with a lifespan of two years <laughs> and by the way, if you leave your company, you're more likely to get a raise by leaving a company and then even coming back if you want to, yeah. then you are staying at a company. It's no wonder we have this kind of constant churn. Yeah. Churn and momentum in the industry of people just shifting around everywhere. Right. Um, and you know, maybe I could reminisce of like my dad's generation where, you know, like you start a job after you get out of high school and maybe you take another job after that. And then it's your job until you retire, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Those days are probably long gone, but like, there's also this notion of, you know, oh, well we need leadership. You know, we need to hire somebody in high level management. It's like, well, you know, oh, I don't know if I want to hire this person because they've only been at jobs for two years and in stints. It's like. I wonder why, right? You know, like, yeah, it's a reason for that. Yeah. So, and when you get up to that level, when you get up to, especially like VP of design level and stuff like that, you know, that stuff takes time to demonstrate competency in that, right? You right. know, like, you, you, you know, the, if you have a massive agenda of how you're going to take this entire division of the company in a certain direction 
for design and really make success happen there, that's gonna take years upon years, you know, um, especially even in, in, in tech that moves fast, you know, um, yeah, you'll ship a bazillion products, but like the change of the culture is gonna be the slow moving current that you almost have to look back multiple years to even see that it's changing. And there's just no, it just feels like there's no patience for that, particularly on the business end of the equation. And I don't know, I don't know that there's any way back from that. I mean, it takes people inside organizations who are really sort of fighting, you know, yeah, and really standing up for it. I watched this, this is going to be a bit of a diversion, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway, because um, I know you're a musician as well. I was watching this documentary about the band Kansas oh, yeah. right, a couple nights ago. And what really struck me is this, this guy, Don Kirshner, who hosted this show, Don Kirshner's Rock Concerts, he was really a publisher, okay? His whole deal was he just, he made publishing deals. I'm going to resell this stuff and make a lot of money. He didn't really know a whole lot about music. But he'd been doing it long enough to know that it was a long game. So through something like their first three albums, he invested a ridiculous amount of money in this band and lost millions. I mean, <laughs> millions. Yeah. Okay. And he was, he was taking a bath <laughs> year after year. But he, he really felt like there's something there. These guys will hit it yeah. eventually. I can sort of see it coming. I know they'll get there. So he hung in there. And I think it was their, their fourth album, maybe, fourth or fifth, where Carry On My Way, Where Son was on that, mm -hmm. on that record and, and a bunch of other things. And then it was, right, it exploded. And he recouped his losses, you know, like something like, right. I don't know, 60 times over. Right. But the point is, it was a long game. And, and he said, I, I'm going to make an investment in this. And that's what it is. It's an investment. I gotta, and I got to wait. There's only one way to find out whether these guys are capable of what I think they're capable of. And that is to play it out. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem that I see over and over. Because, you know, owners and uh, middle managers and CEOs, all sorts of people complain to me about their teams. Right. And we talked about churn a minute ago. I've heard, I feel plenty of complaints about turnover as well. And my, my response is very similar to yours in that none of these folks have had enough time over the target to tell you whether they're capable of doing this or not. Mm -hmm. So they're frustrated because you're, you're looking for uh, indisputable proof that isn't going to be there at this stage of the game. They're frustrated. <laughs> right. And then you're frustrated because they're not meeting this standard that's completely removed from reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that I know what the fix is for that other than to have those conversations, which is what I do. But do you have any sense of, of how that changes? Let's say for an organization that is really entrenched that way in culture, right? Because like you said, once it happens throughout a, a large organization in particular, man, is it tough to sidestep that? There are just too many players used to doing things a certain way. Yeah. I mean, that change, like one, the organization needs to be willing to do it. And that goes all the way to the top right? Like you could have a CEO that's like passionate about like, gosh, you know, we, we know our design isn't doing well. Our design organization isn't operating very well here. They're struggling with a lot of things. We want to do better. We want to support them. We want to see that change. That's great. Yeah. But if your head of product is like clearly like just wanting to ship, you have a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's up to that CEO to lead by example and help guide that their direct the pro, you know chief of product uh, chief product officer or whatever it might be the right direction with that you know like hey no 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 let's not push back on design on this let's not just put this ridiculous deadline that's not realistic let's rethink what this is going to be 
and let this be driven by not just the business objectives, but the user needs, and then of course technical requirements operating in that sort of that sort of space. So, and I talk about that a lot, right? But um, you know, it, it that cultural shift has to come from all angles. It has to come from the top down and bottom up, right? Sure. From the top, though, what what motivates that person? What motivates that person to make that change to see it that way? Yeah. So what I've learned is. You know, like I said, everybody's different. Everybody's a you know special snowflake, if you want to call it that. I don't know. I feel like that's a pretentious way to say it, but uh, <laughs> but you know, everybody's kind of. I am a special snowflake. <laughs> yes, but everybody's kind of got their own. Like every snowflake's different, right? Everybody's got their own different dynamics about how they operate, what their background is, what they know, what yeah. you know. How did they go to school? Did they not? You know, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. and that plays into how they think about the world, right? Um, so the CEO has their sort of lineage, right? And as a design leader, you need to understand that. And not only that, but you need to be somebody that that person can relate to. So if they went to Ivy League schools and you just kind of were self-taught, there's kind of a disconnect at that level. If they, you know, grew up in an affluent neighborhood and you grew up wherever, you know, like that might be a disconnect. If you, you know, there's all these sort of things. And culturally across the U.S., uh, in, in a very, uh, unfortunate situation is we have a lot of leadership that is from a certain demographic, right? Yes. And a yes. certain, you know, both from, you know, the, you know, color of the skin to the, to the money in their wallet, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that has influence and that's who gets the CEO jobs. And so, and so, and so to speak, you know, the hired CEOs anyways, um, they're also the product, you know, idea people that, become CEOs and stick with it, you know, but like they need to like be able to relate to people that are not like them, that add a different, unique perspective to things, you know, hiring people like that is one thing, but actually listening to those folks, right? Yeah, right. This gets into all sorts of other interesting kind of topics, you know, in terms of like diversity and whatnot, but design is essentially the minority in the tech industry, right? Agreed. And so it's kind of this oddball that people can't relate to. And it's kind of like fuzzy around the edges. And you know what? It's really hard to define whether a design was successful or not, you know, even with analytics, you know, and, and so it doesn't fit well for an organization that is all about like, literally like measuring lines of code or like whatever the heck they're doing. Right. Yeah. Quantitative anything. Yeah. And, and, or from organization, it's all money focused and business focused, you know, on that aspect of it, you know? And so it takes a leader to kind of recognize that, you know what, I need to kind of hear the voices in the room and listen to the folks here that I've hired, that I've entrusted to do these things to lead their part of the organization, you know, And that takes, you know, a certain kind of person and not everybody at that level because of how they grew up is in that position, you know? I agree with you. Um, And whether it's the CEO of the product, lead of product, lead of engineering, whatever it might be, you know, and I'm not trying to pick on one particular uh, role or realm, you know, I'm just saying in any organization, in any leadership, you know? Sure, sure. But I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. I mean, for as long as I've been doing this, I've only seen I've only seen that kind of change happen in in one of two ways, mm-hmm. right? There's only two external influencers <laughs> that 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 change thinking at that level, at leadership level. And I'm talking, like you're saying, from the CEO to middle management who has enough juice, right, to make something happen. 
it's either an extraordinary amount of pain in some way, okay, where, where if the company is getting hit, but that's one thing, but that person is getting hit as well somehow. Mm-hmm. There's pressure. There's, there's a blade hanging over their necks, right? right? Real or imagined, um, something like that. And now it's a problem and like, holy shit, now I really am forced to do something about it. I've been ignoring this for a long time. Or there is tremendous opportunity and that opportunity has to be personalized in the same way, which I think is why. And I don't even know if we want to go here, right? But but this is something that I've been I've been working on for the last several months on multiple venues, trying to get maybe some different programs in place or things off the ground. Um, without giving anything away from <laughs> at the at the high school level, at the college level, at the at the business level, um, I think part of the reason black designers don't even make it through interviews in some cases or two interviews in some cases. God forbid up the ranks into a company mm-hmm. because these companies, you know, they had their, their moment of wake up call, like, Oh, this is terrible. And we need to do something about it. Right. You saw all these grand statements about how we're going to examine our hiring practices going forward. And we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I hate to sound this cynical, but I think unless it hits them in some way, and by that, I mean, hurts them in some way that is, that is real, that is emotional, that is, they, they have what my father would call a significant emotional event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's when it changes. Yep. Everything else is lip service. Yep. And the question I'm always asking myself is, how do we get people to that moment? Because I think in any number of ways, it is hurting them. Mm-hmm. And it's hurting their, their users, it's hurting their customers, and it's, it's certainly hurting the community at large, mm-hmm. right? Who, you know, and I say specifically, we can talk about, minorities in general, but black designers, UXers in particular mm-hmm. are just left out of every conversation, mm-hmm. right? Black users are left out of every conversation. right? And I don't know what the answer to that is unless you can sort of make it clear what the tremendous benefit is, right? In some real personalized way or or the, the, the pain that is coming down the pike. Yeah. <laughs> And I hate to be that cynical, yeah. But I'm, I'm really, I'm really, Nick. I, I, I'm really trying to figure this out right now. Yeah. So I, I think a, a couple things is, um, you know, what's happening inside of the company is not always transparent on the outside of the company, right? Um, so, for example, like I know there's a lot of companies that are getting a lot of heat right now about like the lack of diversity inside the organization, and yeah. like I know for a fact those companies are every single day having at least a half of their day dedicated to figuring out this problem and how are they going to solve it? Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's real, because it's like you said, they're feeling pain from something, right? So a lot of good people putting their heads together, trying to figure this out, right? But it's going to take the action. Like you said, it's going to take the action to actually solve the thing. Right. And, and not that it's going to necessarily be solved, but at least inch towards a better situation. Right. Um, And, um, you know, so there's that, um, you know, back up probably like, you know, two decades and, you know, you could talk to organizations and they're like, oh, we need to have diversity. It's all lip service and everything. And, you know, and then maybe there's that like one person you talk to inside of, you know, a cog in the machine you talk to and they're like, no, they're very passionate about it. They want to make it happen. And then you start asking them questions and they're, they're like, yeah, you know, well, we have all these programs and it's like, okay, well, like, where are you hiring your designers from? Oh, these, you know, here's these seven like top performing Ivy League schools. And I'm like, huh, interesting. Right. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, no wonder we have a diversity problem. Our top of funnel is not connected to the right, 
you know, sources, right? Right. We need to go to like, how come we're not at, at you know, name black, black college, right? Or name boot camps or name some non-formal education, right? Um, how come we're not showing up there and recruiting from there, right? Yeah. And the reach of that is, the reach of that is enormous. I mean, we're, yeah, there's a partner I'm working with and, and we're even talking to what are called magnet schools, mm-hmm. right? Which are supposed to be sort of the best of the best. And there are kids who are, who are coming up in those programs that should be equipping them and exposing them to, okay, here's, here's a career in design. Here's a career in UX. Here's how this works. Here's what the pathways are. And the red tape that is in their way is enormous. And no one can tell you why it's there yeah. or why those archaic rules are there or why these, these barriers are in place. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to in the last several months who said, you know what? I went to a good school. I went to a design school, <laughs> right? And, and, but because I'm black, I'm, I was left out of any number of opportunities or conversations or, or, or things beyond that because past a certain point, what you get is you get tokenism and you get lip service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're going, God almighty, how the hell do we break this barrier? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But like you said, it's, there's a certain, I don't know, myopic sort of thing happening where until you get rid of the business as usual stuff, nothing changes. Yeah. And I don't think, I think a lot of people in those positions don't even understand why half of those things are, are, are in place in the first place. Right. Right. Where I'm just, I'm just starting to learn right now, for instance, what it takes to get an after school program happening. There's a gap between three and six o'clock. Okay. For a lot of kids in a lot of high schools, for example, it takes a, a ridiculous, and you're, you're basically saying to school systems, look, we're going to do this. We're going to give it to you. You don't have to do anything, <laughs> right? If you have, which a lot of these schools do, if you have wireless access and you have devices, that's all you got to do. Provide a space. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll do the rest. Kids are there anyway. Mm-hmm. And you can't get anybody to just say, okay, yeah, let's try it. Right. You can't. I mean, just so far that that's been the reply. It's like, well, there's this and there's there's another thing. And then you have to get approval from like these six levels of, of local and state government. And then the federal government has to like, are you fucking serious with this? Yeah. Yeah. So this, this, and uh, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit to something, you know, uh, a little bit of a different topic yeah, go but ahead. on the same area is, um, it took a pandemic for us to realize that we could do remote. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. This is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. It took all this red tape of, oh, we can't do that. Oh, well, no, everybody needs to come into office. It's because of this culture of fear. Yes. Right. It's it's the, the managers want to be able to look over people's shoulders yes. and make sure their butts and seats doing their work or whatever this old legacy heritage is that these people have believed that that's fear. how. Yeah, it's fear. Right. And, and then all of a sudden. The world goes upside down and guess what? Everybody can do remote work in tech, you know, like, yeah, and right. it's not every job is this way. I, I, of course, there is a lot of people out there that I run across every day that are out there every day in a job that they, they can't do remote. They have to physically be there. Um, uh, and I feel for those people. Um, so I'm always, you know, like giving an extra tip or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but you know, the, the thing is, is, uh, you know, the pandemic, pushed pain for the remote aspect and not just for, for, for companies and doing business, like in terms of tech and stuff, but also like 
education is now all remote and it used to be this kind of like especially for design kind of this like gray area like we don't know how to do this and and yeah it's going to be a pain in the ass no doubt there is no easy way joe you know this better than anybody else there is no easy way to do remote education (laughs) no right um (laughs) there is not yeah but we can make it there 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 is tools and technology there to help assist us in some ways and yes it gets in our way most of the time right you got to go forward anyway you got to do it anyway but yeah and the pandemic is what pushed this pain so we felt pain and we took action yeah because we had to we had no choice right some businesses like oh you know uh this is how it is culturally this is how designs treated all this kind of stuff and then they see a competitor rise from some no-name company to all of a sudden being the biggest competitor in the industry and they're led by design or or not they're i'll call it balanced by design not led necessarily right um so design is an equal partner um guiding that ship so to speak and they see these customers just leaving in droves to go to this other product because it is a better experience it's good you know code it's works really well mm-hmm. you know all the things that we we want to have in a successful product and now this company's like oh shit Right. Because those are all the things that they've been saying weren't possible. Right. And they're seeing a competitor do it now. Yeah. And here's the (laughs) genius of this. Now that somebody's done it, they have a model to follow. So it's like not only is somebody kicking their butt at it and now they're feeling pain, but there is and not that they shouldn't necessarily follow it per, you know, straight out, but you know, it's, it's, it's this notion of second to market benefactor, which is uh, somebody's already done it. And now you can see how it's done. Yes. So it's like, Oh, we're doing school the traditional way. Oh, somebody just did remote. How did they do it? Right. And like, let's take the best of that and then kind of do our own flavor of it. Right. Yeah. Um, But you have to feel that pain. And in the world of, and then circling back to the diversity topic, in the world of like diversity hiring, it's like they have to feel the pain. They have to feel the pain to hear that, you know what, they're not doing a great job in this. Yes. And they have to feel the pain of the people that are experiencing it firsthand and their experiences are being shared, which is a hard thing to do, right? Um, but most of all is the rest of us in the industry that are not necessarily a minority or underrepresented group need to help champion this. Yes. And we need to elevate those voices, right? Um, like look around at the number of authors in tech. How many of those folks are black that are not writing a book on diversity? Yeah, right. Or inclusion. Right. Or whatever, right? Like, you know, it's like, where is the standard design book? But, you know, it's like they're, they're out there. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't, I know there's several. I've made a list of this, but, um, you know, the, the thing is, is, uh, then go to conferences and look at the speakers. Yeah. Are they all yep. white males? Are there a few women? Maybe. Yep. You know, like, uh, is there is there anybody that's non-binary? Yeah. Is there anybody from the LGBTQ community? I look at that stage every time I'm asked to join that stage. I look at to see, like, who is in the lineup mm-hmm. and what are they doing? You know, is, is the organization trying to get speakers and authors that represent the diversity in the world and the diversity in our country and the diversity even in that city, right? Um, and if they're not, I call them out on it. I won't take that opportunity. I won't be yet another white guy on a panel. I will not be another white author, right? Right. Um, right. If I don't see that they're making strides in supporting that diversity. So, we champion it by being vocal about it. And I agree. Right? I agree. We champion it by also mentoring others, and helping elevate others. I don't mean like save somebody. No. I mean, give them the tools necessary and give them a jetpack to launch and propel their career in that direction. It's about tools. It's about equipment. 
for the fight, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's how I see it. Yeah. So a lot of this change happens because pain is felt. Yeah. And if the pain is not being felt, i.e. we're being quiet, we're not saying anything, we're not necessarily mentoring people, we don't look at who we're mentoring, you know, um, uh, these th- that causes pain to not be felt, and that means business as usual, right? Yeah. Now, I want to kind of step into another topic that's kind of connected to this, too. So we talked about this whole notion um, of uh, a leader and shipping fast and everybody's, um, you know, has this culture of fear inside the company. So therefore, you know, they're just trying to like impress their bosses and all this kind of stuff. Um, One of the things to have a successful culture is not just to be accepting of, hey, we need to change the way we're operating in terms of diversity, in terms of design, in terms of all these things. We also need to provide a safe space that gives the opportunity to fail and we learn from that failure. Now, that is not common in a lot of cultures. Failure is seen as a negative thing. It's one point against you. It's one point to you, your butt being kicked out the door and people operate in the fear of that, right? Yeah, yep. And I've talked to a lot of leadership people in design and outside of design and great thinkers, people that have written great, amazing, mind-boggling books, like those one books that make you, you know, those books that make you think about things. Like, and I've talked to these people, and the one thing I always remember that was sort of in, com- in common about this is they said in their career, the points where they really shined, where they really succeeded in doing like awesome stuff, was at that moment where they scared the shit on the, out of themselves because they felt <laughs> they were going to totally get fired by doing right. this and they right. just did it. Right. And, and, and I, I will, I will put the caveat up there that yes, you might actually get fired from that. That's correct. That's absolutely right. And I know, I know a great leader who voiced up and spoke up and got fired for it. And that is horribly wrong. It's not the way to run a business, but that happens so you have to know that that can happen. I don't want to pretend that everybody should just go blindly out there and start doing crazy shit, you know, and flipping tables and whatnot. You have to recognize and accept the risk. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. And they all said, every single one of them, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing a lot of people here, but like all these folks were like, yeah, I did this thing and I totally felt I was not going to have a job the next day. You know, I did this thing. And I, I, you know, like I basically told the CEO no to his face or whatever, you know, like whatever extraordinary thing they did. And if the culture's right, if the organization gives a safe space to fail, at the very worst case scenario, it's like, okay, that wasn't cool. Let me tell you, give you the feedback. You need to improve and not do these crazy things, you know. Right. But in the best case scenario, why is this person doing this? Why is this person like risking their entire job and career on the line to make these statements or to do these things or whatever? It must be important to them. Right. And it shakes them out of their, out of their sort of habit, their complacency, their whatever it is. Yeah. So as a, as a manager, as a leader, the best thing I could do for my team is ensure like this is a safe space to fail. And a lot of people look at failure like, oh, you know, when you, when you hear people say like, oh, no, 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 we, we, you know, we, we don't want to do that. Or they say the whole notion of fail fast, fail often and stuff, but then it kind of pay, plays lip service because they're not actually learning from it. Sure. Um, right. But um, this notion of failure, I think people think it's catastrophic failure and it's not. It, it, failure can be small little things of like, well, yeah, 
we really screwed that up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, to kind of circle back around to the politic uh, kind of topic, politics topic, uh, I remember this scene in uh, the the series The West Wing. Uh, huge Aaron Sorkin fan, so you know goes goes par for the course here. But yeah. um, there was a scene where uh, Jeb Bartlett was uh, campaigning. He was on his you know doing his little speeches and stuff around the world around the U.S. Um, and there was a scene where um, it, I think it was like with dairy farmers, um, and basically the government um, they reduced the subsidy for dairy farmers or something like that. There was some sort of impact on the farmers. And this farmer raises his hand in this like speech thing, you know, where it's a Q and A session kind of, and he goes, "Yeah, you know, you totally screwed us over." And, and the character, Jeb Bartlett, uh, uh, Martin Sheen, right? Yeah. He kind of like takes a step back. He does this, uh, uh, kind of symbolic thing that he does where he puts his hands in his pocket, kind of looks off to the side and goes, yeah, yeah, we screwed you over. We screwed you over because, and then he explains how the cost of milk impacts people who can't afford that gallon. Right. Right. Um, and we did it for the better majority of the world or the the US or, you know, whatever it was, um, you know, and, you know, here's the rationale behind it. And it's like, yeah, they made a mistake in some ways in that they put one group of small group of people in a bad situation, which is constantly a thing we're doing a lot, right? Sure. In this country. Trade off. Um, and in, in for the f- favor of the majority. Now you have to know when and where to do that. Like, I'm, I'm actually a firm believer of supporting the, the, the smaller group, right? Um, but I just want to kind of say that, like, admitting the failure and talking about it and explaining the rationale behind it and looking at what happened is important, right? And I think that's the one thing I think tech is missing is, is they talk about, oh, yeah, no, no, we fail early and often. No, you ship stuff and then it fails, right? You don't even test it. You're not looking at, you're not talking to users. You're not even watching users test this stuff. A lot of tech is like leaving that as a big blind spot. Yeah, you're waiting too long. Yeah, (laughs) they're building something on a strategy that is based on somebody's vision at a high level and given down as directive. And we talk about directive versus guidance, um, given down as directive to these divisions of the organization to build a product in this space that does X. Yeah, solution jumping. And so everybody's like, well, that's what the boss. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, it's, I call it solutioneering. It's basically you have the solution before you know what the problem is, right? Yep. Um, yep. And, and a lot of these people believe they know the problem, but they haven't done any research to understand the problem. You know, that's egocentric. It's, it's, I know what's needed. Here it is. Go do it. Right. You know, and uh, sometimes it's, it's driven in a, in a place of good, a good, well-meaning, like, in, yeah, yeah, in other yeah. words, like, yeah, I used to, uh, I remember my experience of doing X, you know, s- describe some business process. Um, right, and right. it was horrible at when I worked, you know, did it through this company. I think I could build a product that solves this problem. And that's the, the product idea person that becomes the CEO and they're driving it. Like, this is my vision for it, which it's awesome to have a vision, but man, you've got to be listening to the market. You've got to be talking to customers. You've got to be watching users use things. You know, you actually got to like observe firsthand. You have to do the research. You have to meet people. You have to go into the field, hear what their pain is. Uh, you talked about like, uh, computers at schools and an internet connection. I mean, God, I remember doing this project where I was doing research and I was interviewing all these teachers across the world and, um, or across, sorry, across the U.S. And um, uh, I remember talking to two different schools in the same state and one school had the, the classic, you know, computer lab and, yeah. you know, they had all, every computer had the software and all the students are at a skill level where they can use the software themselves and the teacher just kind of oversees and helps them get unstuck at times, you know, and then the other school, had one computer 
it was in the principal's office. Right. And that teacher had access to that office when the principal wasn't in there in a meeting and can use it to install software through their one, and I'm a kid you not, a school with a dial-up connection, yeah. you know. No, um, I know. And, I know. And and not that long ago, right? And and um and and that's how they use the software. And the students aren't at a level of skill where they could use a computer because they don't have access to them. Right. Talk about opportunity and access to tools. Yes. Right. Completely. And this is a huge issue with the educational system. I don't even get me started about the educational system in the U S but now we'll be here for another six hours. Yeah. Right. It's a whole can of worms. Um, but, um, you know, that said, it's like, we need to kind of understand like what it's really like, you know, where our customer is showing up physically would tell me so much about it, but even at least just talking to him over the phone tells me a lot. I can ask a lot of questions, right? Oh, completely, completely. And to your point, right. That's been, the gig, yeah, right. In the piece that I mentioned, we're finding exactly those two situations. There's there's one situation where there's one or two machines, <laughs> and and really shitty access and all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. Where that's an instance for us to say, okay, how do we mitigate that problem? How do we get equipment? How do we get sponsors to pay for that equipment? Right. How do we do? You know what I mean? And that's fine. We can do that. And the other part is, yeah, we're we're set up. We got we got everything you need, but there's all this political bullshit in the way of us just saying, yeah, let's try it. Right. Right. (laughs) And they're two different problems, right? They're two completely different problems. But to your point, you don't have a hope in hell. Okay. Of, of solving any of those things or or making any impact on any of those things until you have the conversation and find out what the lay of the land is in the first place. Yep. You know, we, we could come up with, with great plans in our heads and, and fail spectacularly when we try to roll this out. But you know, I, I, I don't want that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't count the number of times where I've been on a project where it's like, uh, I'm not going to call out any company, but uh, it was a great project to work on. And I was doing uh, e-commerce, uh, basically checkout system redesign. And uh, they had this notion that they needed to like overhaul the checkout because a competitor had a different style of checkout called the like one page sort of checkout experience. You remember when Gap did that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're all boasting all this like conversion rate numbers and stuff. Well, it's like one step of a process. So of course the conversion rate's different, but they found that out later. But that said, this particular company was driven by this. And I looked at this project and it only took me like a few minutes of like going around on the site to kind of see, oh my gosh, there's a bigger fish here to fry. And it wasn't that people were not able to like get through the checkout because it was a bad experience or anything. It wasn't that bad of an experience. It was, they couldn't even get to the checkout. And I remember doing these initial, what I call baseline tests. Um, I basically asked uh, participants to run through a series of tasks and I record the whole thing. I'm sitting there facilitating it. And I actually watched all these uh, users that were like going through this process. They couldn't get to the checkout process. Hmm. They, they literally could get to the product, but they couldn't get to the checkout process. And they, uh, they kind of paused. I remember this one user like paused and just kind of stood there for a second and just kind of like looked at me and goes, I don't know what to do here. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, and, and I'm like, well, what would you do if I wasn't here to talk to? He's like, you, you want me to do whatever I would do if you were not here? And I'm like, yep. And we watch this user load up Google, type in the name of the product they were looking for and, you know, whatever the thing they were trying to purchase and hit the button, see the competitor come up first, click on the competitor, go into the competitor site. And in that particular case, that particular user uh, coincidentally wasn't able to actually get through the full checkout because their server was down, but 
basically they were gun ho and they were moving forward and that company just lost a potential right with or without you absolutely yeah and i remember that video and i remember i was playing it to the team to the so the uh, client who hired me and showing them i go watch this and <laughs> and and they watch these users and they're like yeah yeah that's one that's one user right you know it's like i show them one that one clip right you know and everything and, and but they didn't even get to the checkout because you know the the other the competitor site was uh, down or the server was down for the e-commerce part of it. I'm like, what if it wasn't? And like, but but again, it's just one user. How many times does this happen? I'm like, okay. And then I hit the play button, and, and it's like 20 clips of like 10 seconds of every user doing the same exact damn thing. And and they're like, oh, uh, oh. we have a problem, oh. right? Oh. Um, and 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 here's the funny part. That initial research of identifying the problem of getting into the checkout wasn't even in the scope of the project. I literally did it for free. Like, I'm just like, you got a bigger fish to fry and I'm going to show it to you and I'm going to give you this like nugget of gold and you're going to decide whether you want to actually hold on to that, that revenue or not, you know? And I think that's really important. Okay. Kids listening, I'm going to say this for your benefit. <laughs> that, 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 that's tremendously important. Okay. It wasn't what you were asked to do. But you knew it was an issue, okay? And you knew it had to show up and you knew it had to be presented, so you did it anyway. I can't tell you, and I sound like a broken record, I'm sure, how many people come to me every other day with, with some flavor of they won't let me or no one cares about, and, and my answer is always the same, Nick, and it, it is you got to do it anyway, okay? Whether that's taking some of your own time, right, to, to, to prove it out, mm -hmm. make a case, Put it out there. It doesn't matter whether anyone asked you to do it. It doesn't matter where anyone said, no, we don't care about that. It doesn't matter. If you think it's important, and if you know it's important, right, in, in, in your gut, in your heart, you got to find a way to do it. And that, in that instance you just described, that's exactly what you did. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, it was is more important to show them, like, the bigger catastrophic almost level failure than it was you know, what the project assignment was. And of course I did the project assignment and it still lives to this day on that site. Um, so you could actually like go see that e-commerce sort of experience. But, um, but you know, it's just one of those things where it's just like, sometimes that research is such an eye opener, but it requires getting the right people in the room. Yeah. It requires this notion, like in this particular case, they were a client of mine. So I don't know what it is about the whole client vendor relationship kind of thing. Um, but it's just like, somehow I have like this magic aura because I'm an external vendor that somehow they hired me and are paying me a lot of money. So I must know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> I know that one. And, and, and I've, I've been hired in a lot of different situations where part of the hiring process of, of getting a, a project, uh, you know, as an external vendor, um, getting the project, I basically talked to the internal design team that was already there. Cause I was like, one, why isn't the design team already doing this? I love this. And, you know, uh, and, and are they seeing these problems? And I start talking to the design team. Because you know they suggested it. You know they've been there. Exactly. They literally have been down this road. They're like, here's the research reports we've done. Here's all the videos of the findings here's the stuff we showed to the ceo and all this oh, kind of yeah. stuff and and nobody listened to us or they only took off a small nugget of this and that was focused on a high impact revenue thing yep. which of course makes sense from the business standpoint but guess what you know the users are like literally not showing up because of this problem and so me as a vendor like i'm like okay and so what i basically told the design team i'm like i got your back on this yep. you know Always. and so i went into the pitch going we're gonna do this and guess what? We're also going to do this stuff. And guess what? 
your design team has already been asking this and your research team has already uncovered this and they've been going at it for about a year trying to get the organization to move in this direction. And because I'm an outside vendor, I have some of a magical aura and I'm going to do that as part of this project. And I'm going to not do the work. I'm going to empower the design team to do the work. Amen. Right? So, you know, sometimes it just takes a little bit of an outside voice, you know, somehow. And I think it's just that they don't trust their own designers. They don't trust their own design team to do the right thing or to have the right ideas or to be thinking about it in the right scope. And yeah, that can be true sometimes. But a lot of times I find it's just sort of like, no, we're going to hire this outside expert because they have some magical aura. Yes. We're going to hear what they say. That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just like the credibility isn't built up on the team for some reason. And so in those cases, my job as a vendor is not just to do the project and get paid or whatever. It's to help long-term stabilize that company in building credibility of the design team and oh, trust amen. of the designers. Amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what, I mean, I, I, and I've said this before too, but my, my entire reason for taking on consulting work right now, and it, 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 I felt the change about, um, I don't know, maybe about three, four, five years ago, something like that. It ceased to be about the typical UX things like, okay, we're going to make this product better. We're going to make things better for users. I mean, all those things still matter. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But it became about empowering the people inside the organization, standing up for the people inside the organization, easing the stress, the frustration, and, and getting them, helping them be seen. Mm-hmm. The scenario you just described, okay, is, is one that I've done on, I think, every gig I've ever had in the last <laughs> eight years, you know, as far back as I can, as I can remember in particular, because the first, like you, right. The first thing I do is I want to talk to the team and I say, okay, here's, here's what's what we're sort of charged to do here. Tell me what you've done along these avenues already. And I immediately get a whole laundry list of shit that they've, like you just said, that they've been doing for months, for years in some cases. (laughs) And I say, okay, that's where we're going. Yep. Right, because it's all sound. Yeah. You, you, you hear it and you see it and you go, oh my God. I mean, these guys have done the work, right? Yeah. They've done the work. They've done the, the, with, with the right amount of effort and rigor and depth and they've done it. So like you, I, I want to be the person that says, well, here's what your team has been doing. And so I, I agree with them wholeheartedly and this is what we're going to do. <laughs> and, yeah. and personally, I, I love those moments. But like you said, there's something about, you know, they bring in, you bring in an outside consultant and all of a sudden it's a real thing. If you say it, it's real. If someone else says it, it's like, oh, well, they're just disgruntled designers or they want to gold plate everything or, or <laughs> you know, whatever the hell the excuse is. Yeah. And personally, man, I, I love that. I feel like there's no higher calling for me. Yeah. And I, I think there's one thing as outside vendor that is there that may not be so obvious to us is. I mean, yeah, I guess we could lose a client, but we really don't have much to lose. No. <laughs> right? No. Our job isn't necessarily, our, our project might be on the line, but our job isn't on the line, right? Um, and so we could speak up because there's we just don't have that barrier in front of us, right? That fear, right? Right. right. And this goes back to that sort of building a culture where there's opportunity to fail and embracing that failure and learning from it, right? Um, you know, removing that, that fear, you know, and, and again, going back to those leaders that all said the most successful point in their career was when they did something that scared the holy living yes. shit out of them and they thought they were going to lose the job. Yes. And that is exactly in the, in the client sort of, uh, uh, vendors, uh, sort of situation is, is we don't have that fear is just kind of not, not there. 
uh, you know, it's like, yeah, we could lose the project and maybe we don't get paid for the second half of it or whatever it is, you know, but we still bill our hours or, or we still bill like at 50% of the project or whatever it is. But like internally, it's like, I, I would love to see more design leaders stand up and, and take a little bit more risk in some cases Amen. and push things in the right direction. Right. I think in some cases, I think in some cases, it's the only way anything is going to change. Someone is going to have to take the risk and stand up and be unpopular, right? And be ungodly uncomfortable, right? And, and, and feel all that fear that comes with that. Like we've been saying, someone has got to do it. The organization, especially in entrenched cultures like, like you've been talking about, it's not going to happen by itself. It's, sometimes change doesn't happen until people start forcing it. Yep. Okay, and if, and if, and if departments of, of product teams stand up and say, you know what, this, we're, this is how we're going to do this. And we get that's not what you asked us to do, but this is what we're doing. At some point, you're going to leave the, the, the leadership with no choice but to go with you, okay? Because <laughs> what are they going to do? Are they going to fire you, all of you? I don't think so, <laughs> right? I mean, and I, I could. <laughs> they, they might, they might. But by and large, Nick, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, but I've, I've never seen that happen. I've seen individuals get marginalized and fired. Um, but if what you do produces an impact, yep. right? And it's an impact that no one can deny. Yep. <laughs> it's an outcome that makes them look like a fucking hero, <laughs> which in a lot of cases it does, right? Like it was their idea in the first place. There's a lot to be gained there. And I, I really believe that's, that that's what's necessary. It is scary. Yep. It is absolutely scary. But, but what, are you, what else are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, and, and in some of those cases, yeah, some of those folks did get fired. But here's the crazy thing about it is they instilled a seed, yes. an idea, a notion of something and a direction of like what might, you know, where is the fire, so to speak? Like I know CEOs can smell the smoke, but it takes somebody standing up and kind of pointing out, here's exactly where the fire is. And even if they get fired, literally fired for the job uh, uh, from standing up because they're seen as a disgruntled employee or whatever it is, that seed is there and that seed will grow. And, you know, it may not happen overnight. It may be like, you know, a week down the road, a month down the road, a year down the road. And they're like, you know, I remember this person complaining about this particular thing. I'm going to go look at that a little bit more, you know, because the, the dust has settled. The person's no longer there or whatever. And like, I, you know, I've been at a number of different tech jobs where I've looked back and kind of go like, yeah, there's a little bit of a, a tempest and a teep, uh, uh, what's it called? Tempest in a China shop? I don't know. Tempest in a teapot. Tempest in a teapot. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and like at the end, you know, causing a stir. And then moving on to, you know what, this isn't going to work here and kind of giving a, up a little bit of hope, you know, and kind of saying, you know what, this, I'm going to move over here and looking back and going, yeah, oh my gosh, something's happening. Something is actually happening there, you know, and I don't necessarily take full credit of that, of course, you know, because there's other people now in those roles and stuff. But like, ultimately, like it was the seed or the genesis for an idea of thinking about something a bit differently, something that kind of scares, frankly, scares not just the person bringing it up but the business hell yeah right i mean think about like the person in tech at the company that's institutionalized like physical presence you know and all this kind of stuff and going what if we didn't have offices what if all of our employees were remote mm -hmm. you know and maybe they say in such not a very diplomatic way and they get fired for being like disgruntled whatever you know and then like the see is going 
you know, most of our overhead is in real estate. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And boom, a pandemic hits, right? You know? Yeah, right. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it just, it's just like that instilling that notion. And that's the thing that I think we as design leadership sometimes forget is uh, we get, we get, anxious. We get, um, we put an idea out there and we expect action to happen. Just like how engineers want to ship everything. We want to see results from the problems that we're surfacing in user right. experience. And we want to see them overnight kind of thing, you know, instantly doesn't work that way. It doesn't. Yeah. And like, sometimes like it gets shelved, but at some point, maybe somebody's going to dust that off or, you know, something else is going to like a fire, a competitor comes up and starts kicking their butt, you know, and they're like, you know, we did some research on this about two years ago. And I remember we fired this one person because they were so adamant about it, you know, yeah, whatever. Right. and they start looking at this research report and they're like, yeah, it's old and dated, but man, is it so spot on? Or, or maybe the designers are like, you know, just, I could just see the entire design team just throwing their hands in the air. Right. You know, and the researchers going, my gosh, you know, face palming. Right. Sure. But, um, you know, it, it, it instills that notion of like, maybe something can happen at this, you know, um, uh, so, you know, a lot of people operate differently and some people, they take, a, it takes a while for that seed to start growing into some kind of a plant. Right. Um, and, and pretty soon you have a tree, right. Yep. Um, and that's what we're all trying to do is be the successful organization that we know these organizations are capable of by balancing design and leadership, uh, design at the leadership level and basically building trust amongst the organization so that they can empower us to make sure we're doing the right thing. And I say empower us, meaning like aren't going to fire us for going off on these tangents and stuff and yeah. trust that we might know something about this, you know? And it's sort of a leap. I mean, it's, it's sort of a leap. Instead of waiting until you have a leadership title of some sort, Yeah, it's kind of about taking leadership anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to have, it's funny, that's been the thread running through this entire conversation as long as we've been talking. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's kind of interesting. Like one of the, one of the things that like uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely great advice. And I want to put this out there though: is like sometimes people confuse leadership with management. Yes, 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 yes. Sometimes our manager is like, you know, oh, you know, if you want to get to this level, and I see, you know, you want to be a principal level designer, whatever it is, um, you know, you have to demonstrate more leadership. And so they think management. So then they start bossing people around, right? You know, so it could be right because they think that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like this unwieldy experience, right? And, you know, I think it's important that when we're delivering messages, like take that leadership, even if you don't have it granted, take it, you know, what does that really mean? What do they mean by leadership? What kind of like, you know, give guidance in some levels. Cause like, Hey, this like, it would go back to the, somebody who knows how to do something well. And then somebody who hasn't done something before the person who hasn't done something before, like take leadership and own it and run with it. You need to kind of give them a little bit of guidance. So, so they don't like destroy themselves into oblivion on it. Right. Sure. Um, right. So if you had to describe that, because we probably do need to wrap up, but yeah. <laughs> if you had to describe that leadership, you know what you consider to be leadership for somebody who's not in a leadership role, but, but, but we're, you and I are, are sitting here saying to people, you you sort of need to see yourself as being capable of taking charge and being a leader. Mm-hmm. What is that? What do, what do you tell people? What do they need to embrace to do to believe to you know 
whatever. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of different directions uh, of that. So there's the leadership in terms of like really embracing and owning the project and the product that you're working on and and really believing that it can be better and helping that succeed and building partnerships of all the um, other disciplines like engineers, product management, research, data science, whatever, um, you know, and kind of building those on ramps. Um, so there's that aspect of it, of leadership in terms of the product space, right? Or uh, it could be multiple products, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But also leadership uh, in terms of um, leading by example, right? Um, Like exhibiting the qualities of what, you know, you want uh, leadership to look like inside the organization, right? You know, sometimes there's like leveling guides that talk about what they, you know, the exact expectations of what leadership looks like. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, 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 it's really hard to measure though. Like, you know, it's not something that's like sure. this one thing. And if you do it at 50%, you're this, you know, and, and we know it's 50% because of whatever, you know, and if you're at 75%, you're this, you know, it's not quite that cut and dry. But the other thing about leadership and, and you hear a lot of design leaders, for lack of a better word, uh, talk about this. Um, the notion of of uh, not just leading by example and all that, but like developing the skills not as a manager and people management, but of building rapport and soft skills of being able to like be diplomatic in how you deliver information and winning the hearts and minds of the decision makers and the stakeholders in the room because. Guess what? That's not necessarily the job of the manager. That's the job of the most senior level designer on the product, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is to get that buy-in, right? Because yeah, the manager could come in and, and and do that to some level, but like I think a lot of designers just assume that's like, oh, that's going to be like my boss is going to come in and do all that, right? Like, like no, demonstrate leadership by having that rapport with those fellow leaders, like the engineering lead and, you know, whatever, right? Right. Why not you? Why not you? Yeah. And when you're going to have that hard conversation, when something, when the wheels are falling off the, the vehicle, right? And you need to sit down with the lead engineer and win them over on a vision of what this could be and where we've gone wrong and how to course correct that, they're more willing to listen because you have that rapport with them. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's all these soft skills that are involved there that you hear a lot of design leaders talk about designers not necessarily having. And we need to develop that. And that's not something like I don't know of many programs where this is part of it, formal programs or informal, where like, oh, yeah, hey, we're going to teach you, you know, how to use a sketch and Figma over here. And then over here, we're going to teach you how to negotiate and be diplomatic and how to word yes. things and how to bring people on board versus alienating people, you know, that kind of thing. Amen. Amen. You just, that's my whole reason for being. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that to me is, that to me is what's missing, right? It's totally what's missing. Yeah. And I, I couldn't possibly agree more with that <laughs> statement. It's, it's, it's lacking. It's lacking. We're not explicitly taught how to do it. And therefore, I think designers and, and UXers, by and large, think that it's not their purview in some ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's not presented as, hey, this is part of your job, too. Right. And, you know, that goes into mentoring and all sorts of other things, too. Yeah. So on, on that level, and, and I, I could do this for another four hours. I want you to know that. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm having a blast. Um, but I have a call coming up shortly. Uh, so because we got to wrap it up, here's what I think I want to ask you um, is sort of to finish it out. And that is, geez, my dog's losing my mind. 
working from home, right? Yeah, exactly. It's joyous. Um, in terms of like this whole, we, we've gone around and around and around this idea of leadership. And I think this is a challenging time for everybody yeah. like, for any number of reasons. Yeah. Okay? We, we, we know that that's obvious. The writing's on the wall and, and nobody needs us to detail all the reasons why that is so. If you had to give one piece of advice for the, the, the folks we're talking about, right, who are working in the trenches um, and, and faced with difficult situations where maybe because they're working from home, they have less leverage and less interpersonal communication that, than they've had in the past, less collaboration, less whatever. I don't know. If you, if you had to advise somebody on like, hey, how to get through this, this whatever it is um, and how to face all these challenges, what would that be? Uh, man, I mean, there's so many challenges going on in the world, right? Like, and, and everybody's coping with them in different ways. I mean, yeah. I think one is just making sure like, uh, you practice self care, right? Like you're giving your, yourself time and space to process all that's going on in the world around you. Cause like, in some cases, the world is essentially, I mean, literally on fire, right? Um, yes. And, yes. and how do you cope with that? And do you, you know, have you, have you fully processed that and everything? And, you know, we, we, we all know the, you know, the stuff going on, the pandemic, the forest fires, all this stuff, you know, that's happening right now. But also, we also have to recognize everybody's going, everybody's different, everybody's in a different spot in the world. And there's a lot more that's going on in their life than they may even lead on to, right? They could be going through some major personal situation or whatever. Yeah. And we have to kind of be supportive of each other in that regard. And I see it, I, you know, it's not, it's not many folks, but I see a handful of folks, like they know where I'm at in things and they reach out to me, Joe, you're one of them. Uh, and you know, they kind of check in like how's things going, you know, like, and they don't mean it in a, a superficial, like how's the weather, you know, they mean it. in like, uh, I know you're going through a lot. I'm here. I'm your friend. Right. right. You know, let's, let's talk about this a little bit so that you could kind of release some of that energy. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, and I've been, I've been beside myself at the number of folks that I've, you know, only passively have met online or whatever, or maybe it was like five jobs ago or whatever that I worked with, you know, yeah. that are just kind of coming out from nowhere and, and spending a bunch of time just to talk through things. Right. Yep. So, you know, to cope with all this, I think that's one thing that we need to do is uh, one, have our own space, like make sure we have me time, make sure we, you know, step away from work once in a while, because yeah, there is a massive world crisis going on and also everything else going on in your personal life. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and give time for that, but like also make sure we're supporting other folks, you know, um, like I, I'm, I'm kind of notorious for doing that. Like, you know, Hey, you know, I just want to check in see how things are doing, you know, when I haven't heard from somebody in a while, mm -hmm. um, just to kind of see how, how, how things are going and stuff. And, and it's not so much that I expect them like, Oh, you, you haven't tweeted in a while. Like who cares if they haven't tweeted in a while. Right. <laughs> but you know, it's more just the, the <laughs> yeah. thought of, I haven't heard from this person in my, in my world and my communication channels. I haven't seen this person surface in a while. So I want to check in with them, make sure they're okay. Right. And if that means I check in and then they just unload this mountain of like, stress of things they're dealing with just to share it i've done my job right yeah. um yeah agreed and you know so there is that part of it um and then you know in terms of like the practice and 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 doing you know the job of a ux designer ux researcher um you know and coping in the situation where you know maybe your organization isn't properly supporting you or whatever you know that's where you got to look and go do i have a mentor do I have somebody to go to 
to bounce ideas off of, to hear some level of guidance. They can't help me solve the problem or fix it for me, but is there somebody I could use as like a, a little bit of a sounding board, you know? Sure. Um, so, and I, I'm surprised at the number of people, and this, a lot of people think, oh yeah, well, mentor, that's like, like something junior designers do. No, it doesn't matter. You could be like me. 25 years into my career and I still consider I have mentors, right? Same, same here. So, you know, and, and that's the whole notion of like a really good designer, really good researcher is always learning every day constantly, right? Um, I, I call it the hunger. This is something going back to the Jesse, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, me and him were like interviewing these people and like, what is the quality we're looking for? And it was kind of the hunger that they're invested in their careers enough that they want to do better, do more, uh, uh, get better at things, practice more, etc. This hunger of they don't know it all and they want to learn more, you know? Yeah. So making sure that uh, you have a mentor to help you continue to grow because your manager is one sounding board, but that's internal in your company and any other employees across the organization are going to have different experiences depending on, especially if it's a big organization, a big tech, right? Every team's different. They're going through different things. Every division's different. So you can't just assume that they know where you're at, right? Yep. And you could build these relationships with them and have internal mentors, but I recommend somebody outside the company because guess what? Somebody outside the company, you, you build this safe space where you can have a conversation and you can complain about work and you don't have to worry about this person going to some manager or something. You know, you've built that trust. Totally. That safety is important. Yeah, that safety is absolutely important, right? Um, so, you know... And, and having that mentor there is, is insanely important to the success of your career, right? Um, and I know a lot of people are like, yeah, but I can, I'm trying to find a mentor and I signed up to all these services, You're supposed to match me with a mentor and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, as a guy who tried to roll out an international mentoring matchmaking program, that does not work. Okay. Amen. You do not call somebody up. You do not email somebody. You do not send a tweet DM no. and say, Hey, can you no, be my no, mentor? No, 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 no. You no. build a rapport. No. Just, just, just talk. Just, just talk. talk. Yeah. Just, talk. just, just talk. you build a rapport. You have conversation. Let's talk about design. Let's talk about my portfolio. Hey, can yeah. you see this, you know, portfolio of mine and help me get advice? This is like what you do a lot of, Joe, right? And, and, and like just having that person there. And over time, you start to kind of take a step back and go, Gosh, I think this person is my mentor. And you know, what's more interesting is that person takes a step back and goes, I think this person is my mentee. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> right. And it just was never formalized because it's a natural organic thing. I think a lot of people try to like uh, systematize it, you know, try to matchmake. It's not, you know, even dating doesn't do a great job at this, right? What makes us think mentor matchmaking is going to do a great job, right? Yeah, the formalization doesn't make any sense. I mean, you and I ask each other questions all the time. Yeah. Right? And, and it's just, it's casual. It's, hey, <laughs> this happened. <laughs> what do you think? Like, what, like what's going on here? Um, and that's, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's all it is sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Just have a conversation. Just talk. Like we are right now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that is all excellent advice. Um, I, I think this has been tremendous. I am absolutely grateful to finally make it happen. Yes, right? <laughs> Our schedule has been all yeah. over the place. Um, I would love to do it again for no particular reason, uh, just because I enjoy it so much. And uh, Nick, I cannot thank you enough for all your time today. Deeply appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for chatting. And and I, I know you just you love like meeting with folks and talking through these things. And but I just appreciate all the time and commitment to the community that you've given. 
Uh, so shout out to you. Right back at you, my friend. I think we're <laughs> in the same boat and I, I deeply appreciate that. All right, sir. Take care. I will talk to you soon. All right. Take it easy. You too, man. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope that hearing these stories gives you some useful perspective, some encouragement. And I certainly hope that you remember that you are not alone out there. Whatever you're dealing with, someone else has been there. And just like you will, they have found a way to make it work. Before I go, I want to ask you to please check out our sponsor, Stash Studio. Once again, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome. Visit stash.studio to learn more. I also want you to know that you can find links to our guests' social media profiles, websites, and other things that they have accomplished by visiting givegoodux.com podcast, where you will also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it is people like you that make UX work.